Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. This is the first podcast from Wildflower Hour, and if you haven't heard of Wildflower Hour before, you're in for a treat. It is a hugely popular and cheerful hour between 8 and 9pm on a Sunday night, where people post pictures on social media of wild plants they found in flower in Britain and Ireland during the previous week, using the Wildflower Hour hashtag. We've been going since 2015 and are regularly one of the biggest trending topics on Twitter. I'm Isabel Hardman, and while my day job is politics, plants are my personal passion. I accidentally set up Wildflower Hour because I wanted a chance to follow more botanists as they returned from a happy weekend of finding some of the amazing flora that grows wild all around us. Wildflower Hour now has a team of volunteers and a committee of botanists trying to make it grow even bigger and better. We work with and promote the work of the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, Plant Life and the Wildlife Trusts. What we want to do is to encourage more and more people to realise quite how rich our own wildflowers are. We have 52 species of native orchid in these aisles, and we have plants whose private lives would make your mind boggle. You don't need a degree or any special equipment or even to be able to drive long distances to enjoy wildflowers. When you start looking, they are everywhere, and that's what we'll explore in each of these fortnightly podcasts. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to someone who has spent his pre-university gap year trying to see all of the orchids that grow wild in this country, a botanist who is saving some of our rarest plants from extinction, and discussing how just because it's cold and dark outside doesn't mean there aren't wildflowers to be found. So our first item is the strangest gap year you've ever heard of. While his peers headed to Thailand, or on photogenic trips involving teaching English to confused monks, 18-year-old Leif Bursweden decided to stay put in the British Isles and look at flowers. He had such a good time doing this that he even wrote a book about it. I met up with Leif at Kew Gardens to ask him what on earth he was up to. Why didn't you go travelling and find yourself on your gap year? It was a slightly odd choice to stay put in the UK, let alone what you actually did with your time in the UK. It is a pretty strange choice. I think all my, all my friends were going travelling for their gap years, and I'm sure I'd have had a wonderful time in South America or Southeast Asia. But for me, having grown up with this obsession with plants throughout my childhood, I have this sort of, I guess, connection to the British countryside, and I'd spent all these years trying to find as many plants as possible, as many different species, but was hindered somewhat by the fact that obviously I had school and in May and June time, which is one of the best times of years to look the best time of the year to look for flowers, I always had school exams. And so I was always revising or stuck in the library, stuck at home. Looking out of the window rather than exactly. being out there. Exactly. Were you encouraged in this by your parents? Are they botanists? Not by trade. My dad is really into birds and insects, and my mum, um, my mum was the first person to get me into plants. But no, neither of them are botanists. Um, they have been extremely encouraging. They must though. have thought, is he off to, is this a new euphemism for weed? <laughs> is, is he really doing what he's saying he's doing? <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, I had an extremely innocent childhood, so I'm not sure I even knew what weed was by that point. But <laughs> yeah, it was certainly very strange. I don't think they expected it, even after all the trips they'd taken me on throughout my childhood. But as soon as I mentioned the idea, they were completely behind it. Thought it was a wonderful idea. They did raise their questions though about you know how I was going to get around. You, you couldn't drive at the start of. No, no. So I had to learn. I learned uh, how to drive and passed my test about three months before setting off. And so they were slightly concerned about me, you know, driving all the way up and down around the country rather than just into work and back like I had been during the winter. But yeah, they've been incredibly supportive throughout the whole thing and were sort of 
really getting behind me as I as I made my way towards this number fifty two. And what was the uh, what was the hardest bit of the trip? The hardest part, uh, okay, there are, there are two hard parts. Uh, the first one was trying to find the fen orchid in South Wales. It's my one chance to find it. It's uh, it's very small. It's about I don't know five centimeters tall very sort of pale green colour, very inconspicuous. And so I arrived at this sand dune system in South Wales and it is absolutely enormous. It sort of covers miles and miles of sand dunes. And I had to find, there was one plant that people knew of that was flowering at the moment, at that point. And I spent hours and hours in the sand dune trying to follow these directions which I'd been given and found one plant but it's, the flower had been nibbled off. And so, obviously, I'd found a fen orchid, but my sort of aim was to try and photograph them all. And so, obviously, I couldn't. And I thought that was the only one. And it was only after looking for another 20 minutes, half an hour, that I did manage to find this one fen orchid after about six hours running around this sand dune system. So that was one really hard point. The other was, I was so I was doing this trip on my own. I was meeting family and friends as I went, but it was a sort of a sole venture. And so there was one really low point where I was up in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland and the, England was having a heat wave and I was getting photos from my family of sort of ice creams and G&Ts and things. And I was there in the rain in my tent, freezing cold, and just thought, you know, I, just, I don't care about orchids anymore. I'm like... I don't have any friends with me. I'm so far from home. <laughs> Quite a few people would wonder why you cared so much about orchids in the first place. I mean, we have so many weird and wonderful wild plants in this country that aren't part of the orchid family. What, what's so special about orchids? So, I mean, I'm first and foremost a botanist, so I love all these, all these wild plants. But yeah, it was the orchids which sort of particularly captured my interest. And orchids are, without doubt, the most charismatic group of plants in the entire country. And it's this sort of, these range of sort of forms and shapes that they produce. So you've got flowers which look like monkeys. You've got flowers which look like bees, like pyramids, like soldiers, like slippers. And some of those weird flowers have evolved, as you explain in your book, to actually mimic insects to the extent that the insects try to have sex with these flowers because they smell and feel and look like a female how on earth has a plant managed to evolve to do that this is so cool yeah i love these are my favorite orchids my favorite plant is the bee orchid it's evolved to exploit the sexual desire of male bees and so what happens is the female bees emerge later in the year than the males and the orchid has sort of timed its flowering to coincide with the male bees um, emerging in the spring so the flowers of the bee orchid to the male bee at least look feel and smell exactly like a female and so our male bee is sort of flying around looking for a female to mate with and he comes across a bee orchid and he perceives what he believes to be a female with her head buried amongst the petals. And so he thinks, great, it's my lucky day. 
<laughs> Wonderful. I scored. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so he flies down, he lands on this, what he thinks is a female, and attempts to have sex with it. And in doing so, he picks up pollen, completely oblivious to this, picks up pollen on the back of his neck, and after a while, begins to get a bit frustrated by the lack of action, and buzzes off in search of a more enthusiastic partner. Um, so he's flying around again, looking for more females, comes across more orchids, falls for the ruse all over again, and in doing so, deposits the pollen on this new plant. So it's this ingenious system. It's so clever, and this entire fraud is masterminded by a plant. Is it easy to find a bee orchid, or do you actually need to take a whole year to see orchids? Orchids have this aura of rarity around them, um, and it's true, there are, there are a lot of orchids which are really rare, and you do need to know where they are to find them. But actually, a lot of orchids are very common. And they are very accessible out in the countryside for anyone to go and see. And the bee orchid is really one of these. A lot of people think, because it looks so strange and so exotic, that it is a rare orchid. But it's, it's really, really not. And will actually grow even in sort of industrial estates and things like this. So they are very, very easy to find. So it's a case of keeping your eye out, basically, and looking for things even when you're not expecting them. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Who'd have thought an orchid could grow in an industrial That I found my favourite orchid growing in a Glasgow car park, so I know exactly what you mean. What's the one orchid everyone should see before they die? Um, I would have said the bee orchid, but actually maybe the lady's slipper. The lady's slipper is perhaps the most exotic looking of the British orchid, uh, and... It was declared extinct at the beginning of the 20th century, but was rediscovered in the 1930s. Um, And there's one plant that was discovered has been protected for years and years and years and still alive today. And recently, scientists at Kew Gardens have managed to work out a way of growing this orchid from seed in the lab. And what they've been able to do is reintroduce um, plants with British genes from this one remaining British plant out into the countryside again in the north of England. And so there are places uh, like Gate Barrows, Which Nature Reserve in Lancashire. Which is one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been to, actually. Stunning. Quite extraordinary. Um, um, where you can, anyone can go and see this orchid growing in the wild again, which ten years ago you wouldn't have been able to do. Because the original lady slipper is under lock and key, isn't it? And you did try to sort of penetrate the defences around this plant. I did, and I was absolutely amazed at the resilience of these people who know where it is to not say anything. I just find it extraordinary how one plant can sort of control all these people and it's such a well-kept secret. You've been completely captivated by orchids. It's not as though you, like a lot of people, did a gap year and then actually it just became a nice memory. They've now become your life, haven't they? Because we're sitting in Kew Gardens under the South West London flight path and this is where you are now studying a PhD on orchids and not just on orchids but actually on monkeys and ladies mating which sounds a bit like a sort of low rent horror movie (laughs) just explain this a little bit more yes i'm i'm looking at four orchids which grow both here in england and on mainland europe so there's the monkey orchid the lady orchid the man orchid and the military orchid Uh, and these orchids are called anthropomorphic um, because each of their flowers looks like a little human they've got little arms and legs and they all look quite different but when they grow together they hybridise and reproduce with each other and form these intermediate orchids which look sort of half like one parent and half like the other and what I'm essentially trying to do is work out why these four orchids remain as four separate species rather than just merging into one big 
hybrid super species. And your book isn't just about orchids though, is it? It's actually about you growing up as well. So do, do you think that you actually did find yourself? <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely not all about the plants. Um, I suppose... I suppose it's kind of a coming-of-age book in a perhaps unusual kind of way. Um, but yeah, before before I did this trip, I spent my entire childhood um, completely obsessed with plants. And this, this obsession allowed me to bypass many of the trials of adolescence. And so, for example, instead of facing the terrifying prospect of talking to girls, I spent my childhood running around the fields and the woods to talking to lady orchids instead, exactly, which is far more Not fun. Um, but this obsession culminated in me needing to find all of these plants, and that sort of dominated my life. And so I think what this trip did was it allowed me to get this botanical tourism, if you like, out of my system and, I guess, allow me to grow up at last at the end of it. That was Leif Bursweden on his own Orchid Delirium. You can buy his book, The Orchid Hunter, in all good bookshops. Leif did have a hard time finding some of the orchids on his list, and that is because for some of these species, life is getting harder and harder. One orchid in trouble is the lesser butterfly orchid, Platanthera bifolia, which is listed as vulnerable and near threatened. But help is at hand in the form of a new project run by a number of charities and government bodies called Back from the Brink. It aims to rescue 20 species of wildflowers, invertebrates and birds from extinction. Trevor Dines is the botanical specialist at Plant Life, which is running a number of these projects, and he chatted to me about why it was even worth trying. So Trevor, just explain to us a little bit about the Back from the Brink project. Yeah, this is a uh, a new and really quite exciting way of all of the sort of species-focused NGOs to work together for the first time. Um, so, you know, there's Back Conservation Trust, there's Butterfly Conservation, Bug Life, ourselves, RSPB, and you know, traditionally we sort of work... Uh, in our own furrows, if you like, but this is a way of coming together and uh, working for uh, all sorts of different species on the sites where they occur. And the the ambition is really quite bold. It's to save uh, 20 species from the very brink of extinction and then also put another 200 species back on the road to recovery. And so what are the plant species that you're trying to save? Obviously, at Plant Life, we're sort of leading on four of the projects, but that's not all of the plant work that's going to be happening. So other organisations will be working on plants at, at their sites. And the two, we've, so we've got two sort of big habitat projects that we're working on. One looking at the Dorset heaths, so species associated with Dorset heaths, things like marsh club moss, Dorset heath it's, uh, itself, the sundews that live on the Dorset heaths. And that's a really nice project because that's integrated with probably the sort of show girl of the whole project which is this wonderful ladybird spider that lives in the same habitats as well so our work on plants will benefit the spider and vice versa as well which is wonderful. Why is that particularly endangered that particular habitat? Yeah, that, that habitat's very very threatened. I mean, lowland heathland habitat is traditionally, you know, is, is one of those habitats that's really suffered from agricultural intensification over, over the years. So, you know, we know in many areas over 90% of lowland heath has disappeared from particularly lowland areas. And they're very, very vulnerable with their lights, free-draining soils to, to agricultural intensification. So prime habitats really for, for converting into either grazing pasture or, or, or cultivated arable land. So that's a really threatened 
threatened habitat and another very, very threatened habitat will be arable fields, arable cornfields, where the use of insecticides and herbicides and fertilisers over the years have led to a huge number of species disappearing from those. I think there are more extinct flowering plants in the arable habitat than, than any other habitat in Britain. So that's really a prime, hab- prime habitat for us to be working on and the project is called keeping the colour in the margins so it's looking at arable headlands and that way that you know just by leaving them unsprayed unfertilized a lot of these things are still present in the soil seed bank and we're talking about things like corn flour corn corn marigolds corn cockles can all start coming back from the seed bank but we're also linking up with a really exciting project up in the Yorkshire Wolds where they're actually taking seed from one site in one farmer's field and putting it into another far- farmer's field. So this idea, and this is how a lot of these plants originally moved around the countryside, was in fact the sharing of seed corn from farmer to farmer spread these agricultural weeds, as a lot of people would call them, from site to site. So we're sort of replicating that sort of ancient movement of these plants around and putting things like uh, corn buttercup and pheasant's eye back into places where they used to occur in, in, in the past. I suppose a lot of people would say, well, yes, they are weeds, actually. They get in the way of a farmer managing their crop properly. So why are you trying to bring them back? Surely farmers have spent centuries trying to get rid of them. <laughs> Yeah, and my dad is actually one of those farmers. I grew up on, 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 on an arable farm, and uh, dad, in fact, produced specialist um, seed mixes. So he had inspectors coming around uh, three or four times a year to make sure he had absolutely no weeds in, in, in his crops. And then, you know, for me, years later, I sort of started pointing out to him that this was a farm down in Hampshire. We were lucky enough on the chalk there to have a really rich arable for, flora, and I started pointing out things like prickly poppy, like dense flowered fume tree, things like that that were present in in the fields and that he'd spent years trying to <laughs> exterminate and he got really excited about them he, was, he, he became really proud about the fact that they, that they were present on the farm and part of that cultural he- heritage and, and legacy going back through the ages with, with, with ancient patterns of agriculture and he got quite passionate about, about um, restoring them and, and today he's retired from that farm but that work continues there back on that farm yeah, the, the, they're in an agri-environment scheme and you know, through that, that payment for wildlife on, on farms, these species are still there and, and coming back. So you know, even this year, I was uh, popped back to see the farm and there's, there's night flowering catch fly in the, in the margins of the fields there. And that, that's fantastic. I think it, it's about pointing out to farmers what they've got and what they're responsible for and what they can look after. And I think so many farmers are willing to do that sort of work if they're given the right advice and the tools in which to be able to do it. And what are the other species that you're trying to protect from extinction? There's two others. There's two actually sort of species-specific work that we're looking at. So we've got two species projects, which are another part of the the Bat from the Brink project. One of those is looking at a personal favourite of mine, which is lesser butterfly orchid. Of course, we've got two butterfly orchids in Britain, lesser butterfly orchids and greater butterfly orchid. They're lovely white-flowered orchids, so you get a spike in sort of normally the end of May, beginning of June, of these absolutely beautiful little white flowers. They're often described as angels with outstretched wings. They're lovely, lovely 
lovely shape and little white flowers that produce quite a strong scent in the evening and at night so they produce a strong clove scent and this enables them to pull in the the moth pollinators that, that pollinate them and they're actually after quite large moths we think most of them are pollinated by hawk moths in fact because they've got a very long spur at the back of the flower and it's only hawk moths that can get their tongues down to reach the nectar at the at the end of the spur beautiful little orchids now the lesser butterfly orchid is is actually a very very odd thing because it will grow in calcareous habitats it will grow in neutral habitats so grassland habitats but it'll also grow in acidic habitats and particularly in the west of england and west britain you find it in peat bogs flushes and scrapes on on peat very acidic sometimes it's in very well drained substrates sometimes it's in very wet substrates sometimes it grows in the open sometimes it grows you know in in shaded woodland habitats so it's very very cosmopolitan in what it likes but it's very very restricted in its habitat and part of the work that we're doing at plant life will be to look into the ecology of this orchid and see really what's happening there and why is it that there's large areas of habitat around where this orchid hasn't moved into it you know, what's happening there why, why is this suitable habitat un- unoccupied so that's what mainly what we'll be looking at with um, lesser butterfly orchid and looking at the management that, that it particularly needs and then the final one is, is a real oddity and this is um, a thing called Cornish path moss obviously not a flowering plant a, a nice little moss and uh, you know, use at plant life to having the, the really difficult things to sell in terms of publicity and uh, getting people involved uh, Cornish path moss is probably top of the list of dull species to look after in the back from the brink project but we've got it's a tiny little green moss and there's about a a doormat sized patch of it left growing down in cornwall now the key to this species is, is that it's very tolerant of copper and it only occurs in areas where there's been copper mining in the past and this is where we can open up that cultural history to it make that link to our own activities in the past and really bring this thing to life that habitat has overgrown and we're actually going to be working uh, in terms of sort of publicity and celebrating it with the art uh, with the Falmouth Art College and seeing if they can they can sort of celebrate not just this moss but that cultural heritage that it's associated with and therefore celebrate this moss at the same time you might get some people even if they appreciate the sort of cultural heritage of this moss and of other plants as well asking why do we need to bother what's the point in pouring all this effort and money into saving plants which clearly just can't cope with our modern environment <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah that that's that's a, a question that, that a lot of people ask and and you know we've found through you know the pressures of what do we conserve in this is it worth conserving these species and there has been a move recently from some of the agencies in britain to not not worry so much about the individual species but just look at the habitats and that's a really dangerous road to start going down because every single species is important and every no species lives in isolation so there's some really nice work published in nature a couple of years ago looking at the role of every single species in whole ecosystem functioning so things like pollination things like carbon capture and storage things like flood mitigation those those sorts of ecosystem services that we all benefit from and they found that in fact you don't need to remove many species from 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 an ecosystem from a habitat before those systems those those services are are compromised 
and we already have gone past most of that threshold for most habitats in, in Britain already. So we're talking about a loss of 10, 15, maybe 20% of, of species from a habitat, from an ecosystem, before you start seeing this compromise in, in the services uh, that can be delivered. So it really is important that we look after every single species because we just don't really know what sort of role they're playing. We've got some of the best studied wildlife in, in the whole world, uh, going back with our Victorian, go back to our Victorian obsession with wildlife and, and studying those, those relationships. But even here, we, we know nothing. We, we know nothing about so much of our wildlife. There's complex interactions underground with mycorrhizal fungi, how they're being impacted by nitrogen deposition, for example. And um, just generally, that this, like I say, this interconnection of, of all these things, remove one from the equation, and that has knock-on effects for, for, for everything else. What can those who aren't the pros do to help this? What can people who take part in Wildflower Hour actually do to help? Bringing these things back from the brink takes a long time. We're not going to do it in one generation. We need to get the next generation inspired. So we want over a million people to be involved, and so that will be just sharing images on social media so wildflower hour is, is perfect for that you know it'd be great if we can look at some of these species and get people going out and and, and finding them photographing them sharing them on social media it's that raising that inspiration so that we then value these things that's what it's all about and then for some of us we're then motivated then to go on and act trevor dines from plant life on saving endangered plants and finally this podcast is launching in the winter in the dark hours of a cold day. Haven't all the wildflowers stopped blooming? And who is thinking about them anyway when it's so cold outside? Well, anyone who takes part in Wildflower Hour will know that there is still so much in flower, and that's why we have launched our challenge for the colder months, the winter 10. All you need to do is get out there and find 10 wild plants in bloom during the week and post them on a Sunday night between 8 and 9 p.m. You can put them in the Wildflower Hour Facebook group or post them on Twitter or Instagram using both the usual hashtag Wildflower Hour and the special challenge tag hashtag The Winter 10 and 10 is 10. Louise Marsh is the communications officer at the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, which runs a New Year plant hunt to see what's still in flower as the year dies. She is also one of the most important figures in Wildflower Hour, responsible for encouraging more people to join in to the point that it started trending. It's difficult to find someone who Louise hasn't helped grow in their knowledge of plants, even if they've only tweeted at one another. So she joined me to explain why we were sending people out into the cold to find flowers. So Louise, it's the winter. Everyone wants to stay inside on their sofa under a blanket and yet here we are telling them to get outside and find flowers. I mean are there actually any flowers in bloom at the moment? Oh there are loads of flowers out in bloom. I'm always astonished about how much is actually out there and in bloom. You know textbooks about 20-30 years ago were saying there's not that much around in the winter. They were literally saying, you know, 30 or 40 things that you're going to find in bloom, and most of them had names like winter heliotrope. And since we started doing our New Year plant hunt a few years ago, that theory has just been completely blown out of the water. We're obviously going to have to rewrite all the textbooks because we're finding so much is still in bloom. And you think, well, has something changed? Or maybe it's just that we weren't actually looking before. And I think that's the thing that we're all so interested now. Now it's we've started getting out there and looking and finding stuff 
and people get so hooked on wildflower hour and then it gets to this time of the year and they're like oh I don't want to stop I keep looking wanting to look at things so it's fabulous that you've set up this winter 10 idea that's really amazing it's funny isn't it you say that it might just be that we haven't been looking and the flowers have been blooming all along and actually I think that's the case with wildflower hunting generally that when I start sort of trying to I don't know brainwash my friends into botany they start finding flowers everywhere because Mm, beforehand they just hadn't been looking um and that's probably the the same in the winter so you've been running the new year plant hunt for a little while just explain what that is okay we've been running it this uh we've been doing it for six years now it started in 2012 and it literally started off, oh, should I say this, with two botanists with thumping hangovers who were like, oh, let's go out and try and find some flowers. <laughs> and it's just grown from there. And people have just picked up on it and thought, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Let's go out for, and we say, you know, maximum three hours in the New Year period. Um, we always announce on the 1st of December which dates it's going to be. And the idea is you just go out and you find as many things as you can in flower and you write them down and you send them to us. And last year we launched an app so that people could do it with or people can put things out on Twitter and put a photo up and say, look, I spotted this in flower. Is that unusual? And then loads of other people come along and go, no, I live on the other side of the country. And look, I saw that thing in flower as well. And then another botanist will come up and go, oh, I've seen it too, and I can tell you what it's called. Um, And it's amazing. You know, we've had, I think our youngest participant was three years old, and he was out with his grandfather. And we've had people in their 90s out, family groups, and it's just the most enormous fun. Um, And it's a good way to shake off the winter blues and get yourself off the sofa and out looking for plants. What are the commonest flowers that have been found over the New Year plant hunt? Usually about half the things that are found in bloom are uh, what our head of science charmingly calls the autumn stragglers. <laughs> the things that you're going to see, a lot of us see all year round, ragwort, hogweed, yarrow, the things that, frankly, if you're a gardener, you're talking with your gardening head on, you're going to go, oh, those are really annoying weeds. <laughs> but then if you're a botanist, you're like, oh, no, they are wildflowers with a ruder strategy because they can appear almost anywhere. And... Um, Often you do find them in the scuzziest places of all. <laughs> um, usually we find some early springtime things as well. Um, then we get a lot of people from the media saying, oh, is this the sign of an early spring? And you have to go, no, it doesn't look like it. It's just these things are flowering. And are there flowers that only flower in winter? You mentioned the winter heliotrope, for instance. There are a few things like that, and then there are those early spring things like primrose and sweet violet and less celandine. But as we've seen from Wildflower Hour, people have been finding primrose flowering in the last few weeks. Um, People come up and go, oh, look, I spotted this. Is this really unusual? Is it a sign of climate change? And then we get other people from other parts of the country going, oh, actually, I saw it in flower last week as well. So... I really think we're in uncharted territory here. The old textbooks are just completely wrong about what should, in inverted commas, be blooming at this time of year. Have they always been wrong or is it climate change? Oh, 
that's the question that we ask our head of science every year when he analyzes the results from the from the the new year plant hunt and he's still not really prepared to say it's climate change but one thing is certain that we are seeing the first frost coming later and later in the year uh, when i was a girl many decades ago we'd get our first frost usually in the middle of september and then this year it, it was early november where i'm based in leicestershire so there are certainly changes going on but as you know we you know what it's like with scientists we always say oh we don't have enough data yet we need to collect more data and then we can do more analyses as opposed to journalists who are mostly english students who've learnt to blag having not read the book <laughs> i speak as one myself what's the weirdest or most surprising find i mean have, have you had for instance an orchid turn up in the new year's plant hunt Oh, I would have to check that one and get back to you. I'm not aware of any orchids that have turned up at New Year. The weirdest thing I found was two winters ago, I was out with our Leicestershire group doing a New Year plant hunt. And that year, the frost had been really late. And we have an area in the centre of our town where the city council has flour mix. Cornflowers in bloom on New Year's Day. <laughs> Wow. And, you know, you think of cornflowers as, you know, you just say the word cornflower and you're immediately thinking of meadows, the sun beating down, the butterflies everywhere. And just to see these cornflowers blooming in the middle of winter was like, I don't believe it. And next to it, we had some Austrian chamomile, which is something that's popping up more and more frequently in wildflower mixes. So, yeah, I think cornflower was my weirdest thing I've ever found in the middle of winter. For, for people who are just getting into wildflowers, what are your tips for, for them botanising over the winter? How do you actually get into, into doing some botany in the first place? Oh, I think the first thing is um, get yourself a nice, buy yourself a nice new warm winter coat and a woolly hat. Invest in a hip flask. <laughs> No, sorry, these are naughty suggestions. The, the key thing is to get out there and have fun. So either on your own or go out with friends and family. It is great going out on your own or just nip out at lunchtime. Um, and just keep your eyes peeled and see what's out there. If you're starting off with botany at this time of the year and you've never really done this sort of thing before, we have actually put together on the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland website a Get Involved page, which has got helpful hints for getting started in botany. And you won't be surprised to hear that number one is, why not take part in Wildflower Hour? <laughs> and number two is, why not join our New Year plant hunt? But we've also got things about um, buying hand lenses, buying an identification book, and then helpful groups on Twitter and on Facebook that you can go to and, you know, just share a photo and say, look, I've seen this thing. Can you help me identify what it is? And I think you'll find, as, as you were saying earlier, that once you show people something and they've seen it for the first time, then they're like they're on Twitter going, do you know what? I'm seeing that thing all over the place now. And you just think, yeah, now, you, now you've got your eye on with it. You're going to keep seeing it everywhere. And then you're just going to build up the number of things that you're seeing everywhere is just going to increase and sooner or later you're going to have to accept you're a botanist. It's just the way it goes. That was Louise Marsh from the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland 
And that's all for this episode. Have a very happy week plant hunting and the next podcast will come out in two weeks time. In the meantime, go to wildflowerhour.co.uk to keep getting your flower fix. Thanks for listening.